Well, each week that I've preached one of these, I believe that I have said it was uh, one of my favorite Christmas carols, and that is true, but if that's true, this week we have reached the crescendo. Hark the Herald is by far my favorite. It combines all the themes that we've looked at this Christmas, the themes of kingship, of peace, of mercy, of joy, of the incarnation, the lordship of Christ, light, life. The resurrection, the second coming, it combines everything. And it would take weeks to cover every topic scripturally that this carol addresses, but we will have to suffice with a few examples for this morning for sake of time. Just a little background, uh, the hymn was originally penned by none other than Charles Wesley, which is really no surprise as We've already seen a couple of his carols this year, and we sing so many of his hymns in our hymnal. And everything that Wesley wrote in terms of hymns are very biblical. But there's an interesting detail behind this hymn that sort of edges its way into another story. The words that we traditionally sing to this carol, while still largely Wesley's, are actually an edited version. Now, who was the editor? Well, it was none other than a man named George Whitfield. Now, if you know anything about the history of our nation and Christianity in our nation, you know that that Wesley and Whitfield are both well-known for their leadership and involvement in the Great Awakening in the 1700s. As preachers, they were both very gifted. Yet, as theologians... They differed quite a bit. George Whitfield was sort of a moderate Calvinist, and, and the Wesley brothers, well, they were Methodist Arminians. So Whitfield and Wesley often butted heads on the details of, of election and sovereign grace. However, despite that, they often worked together, sometimes maybe begrudgingly, but by the end of their life, They were the warmest of friends. An example that shows that is Whitfield's words to Wesley on his dying bed. They reveal a deep sense of love and appreciation for his brother, even despite, even through the differences. And when Whitfield took his last breath, who do you think preached the sermon at his funeral? That's right, Charles Wesley. Wesley and Whitfield were both faithful preachers of the gospel, the gospel that led to many thousands of people experiencing the kind of reconciliation and the second birth that this hymn that we just sung proclaims. Their labor together on this hymn then pictures their relationship. While they had their differences, the core essentials remain. And the words to this song are full of scriptural and doctrinal treasures which point us to the same Christ that they adored and served. And we could explore a number of themes this song employs, but again, for today we can look at just three. And sort of the big idea of the morning is this. The joyful announcement of Christ's birth is so great because it tells us that God is with us, that he has rescued us, and that we are reconciled to him. Before we go any further, let's bow for prayer. 
Our great Heavenly Father, we praise you that we can come to you this morning. We praise you that we can, we can look at these scriptures, Lord. We're thankful that we can sing songs that are so richly filled with the words and the themes of your word, Lord. We're thankful for, for men and women in times past who, who gave much labor into writing these words so that we can sing them and in a better way remember and also praise Lord, I pray that as we look at these themes this morning, that we would be gripped not by the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but by the testimony of your scripture, of your word. Lord, your word is living. Your word is alive. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any sword. Your word, Lord, is what you've promised would not return void. So we pray today that in this place, your word would be at work and that we would humbly receive it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a fascination with things being just in order, especially chronological order, you may cringe at the outline for today because we aren't going in order, at least in terms of of the words of the carol. Uh, So we'll start then with the second half of the second verse because I think that this portion of the carol is perhaps the most mysterious yet rich, part of the whole song. Jesus, our Emmanuel. The whole line goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Well, a couple weeks ago, we spent some significant time looking at at John chapter 1, particularly verses 1 and 14. And in those verses, we learned about Jesus as as the word or the logos, the, the central factor, the unifying figure of not just human history, but of all creation, the creator of everything, whom everything was created by and for. The first week when we looked at the carol, Come, Thou Long Expected Jesus, we, we saw the, the idea that all of redemption is taking us from the first garden, Eden, to the final garden, so to speak. That final experience of, of perfection, of, of God dwelling with mankind again. No sin, no sickness, no sorrow. And Jesus coming to earth was both a taste of that and the means by which that will ultimately happen. He came as the deliverer to take his people, us, from our state of sin-cursed earth, back to one day being in the state of created perfection. Now, there are numerous prophecies about this, but one that comes up often at Christmas is found in Isaiah chapter 7. In verse 14, you can turn there if you'd like, or you can follow along on the screen. Isaiah seven fourteen says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the further context of, of this passage in Isaiah has to do with the Lord's deliverance of his people. Uh, specifically the Lord's deliverance of his people at a time of Assyrian invasion, a time of incredible hardship and difficulty. 
And in the midst of that, there was this promise of Emmanuel. Now, like many prophecies, there is an immediate fulfillment, something that was going to happen very soon, and there's an ultimate fulfillment. Now, sometimes, if we're honest, we're left scratching our heads as to what one or both of these fulfillments might be. But in the case of this one, we, of course, have a clue. Now, some may not have paid much attention to Isaiah 7, 14 regarding the the distant future, but some did. And one example of that is found in the opening chapter of Matthew. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 22, we read this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. All this, the verse begins. Well, this prophecy, this scripture is preceded directly by the the short but concise birth narrative of Jesus that Matthew gives. And that birth narrative is followed or is preceded directly by the rather extensive and important Genealogy of Jesus, which traces his lineage from Abraham down to King David and then ultimately all the way down to Mary and then Jesus. And if just the details of of this passage, the the birth narrative, uh, the the lineage, the, the the miraculous nature of the whole thing, if just those details were not enough to make us wonder at the prominence and importance of this child, the prophecy that Matthew then quotes is enough to show that belief or disbelief in this child is a pivotal element of our lives. He says this, all of this was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive, but not in the normal way, as we've seen, but by the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, But not just any son. Who would this son be? They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that's a nice, beautiful sounding name. I wish we had a definition. Well, we do. Matthew gives us one. God with us. God is with us. Now certain things happen in life things which are reminders of the presence of God, of his care for us, of uh, maybe a near-miss accident or an answer to prayer for for a medical health concern. Maybe it's a a healed marriage. Maybe it's a a child that comes back. Any number of things. Something happens and and we might say, well, God is with us. He's, He's shown himself to us in this. And certainly, in the birth of Jesus, God showed himself to be with his people. But the birth of this child wasn't simply to say that God is with us. Rather, the child, Jesus, is God with us. Philippians chapter 2 We won't turn there this morning. You can jot it down and look later. But it really spells out the unfathomable nature of this. That Jesus, the the very form and substance of God, stooped so low to be born in the fashion of man. 
We sang in the carol, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Do you remember last week when we looked at John 1.14 and we, we learned that the word was made flesh and, and dwelt among us? And that word for dwelt, again, is, is reminiscent of the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle and ultimately within the temple, in the holiest place behind the veil was God's presence. But here, in Jesus Christ, behind the thin veil of human flesh, is God's presence. God with us. Truly God. And truly man. The miracle of Christ's birth at Christmas is not that God's presence was simply promised. It is that God's presence came in the person of Jesus. God walking on earth with mankind. A taste of future glory. And the work of eternal redemption. We go on, and in one portion of the carol, we sang that Jesus was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Now, where does Wesley and where, do, where does Whitfield get this idea of, of this second birth? Well, earlier in the service, we read from, Dennis read from John chapter 3, and uh, he read all the way down through verse number 16. And I want to read a portion of that again. And I want to look at John 3, beginning in verse number 2. It tells us the story of a man named Nicodemus. And it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, Pardon me, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Born again. It's a statement that may have been confusing to Nicodemus. But it's also a statement that is perhaps the most beautiful and, sh- and wonderful picture. of Showing forth of what our redemption is. Born again. It strikes confusion in the hearts and minds of men because, because we can hardly imagine what it was like to be born the first, first time. We can see it. Uh, three weeks ago, I saw it as our, our, our newest child was born. I watched very carefully as he was born. But still, in my mind, I cannot fathom what it was actually like to be born. You can hear it in Nicodemus' question, the, the confusion, the wonder. Can I, can I enter the second time into my mother's womb? Now, there's probably 
a little bit of what we would call sarcasm in that question, as if to indicate that Jesus' words were at least very confusing or maybe even seemed crazy. They seem impossible. But there is also a telling element in that. You hear it in the question, can I enter? How do I accomplish this? How can I bring this about? What can I do? And to that question, Jesus, in part of his reply, says this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, Jesus piles an analogy upon an analogy here, but it is helpful. We understand the wind only by its effects. At least on a normal basis, we, uh, who aren't scientists, we don't determine its, its source or see it. We only see the leaves rustling or our lawn chairs blown over. Other than that, it's, it's an invisible force. Only the effects are visible. We can't control it. We, we can try to stop its effects, but in the, in the most severe cases, even our best attempts to stop the wind are overcome. And so it is with the second birth. We can't predict it in a person's life. We can't manufacture it in a per- person's life. We cannot totally understand or even fathom its fullness, but we see its effects. We see the new life. And a believer. And we see that it is a work of God, a work of the Spirit. Back in John 1, John wrote something very similar. He wrote in verse 11 that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of Blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is that same analogy, born from above, born from God, born not by human will or exertion, but of God. It's it's as Paul says in Romans 9, God's mercy depends not on human will, but on God who gives mercy. And we see this summed up in John 3, in John 1. And we're so thankful that Jesus went on in John 3 to tell us in verse 14 and following. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The serpent was lifted up in the wilderness for a temporary healing for those stricken. But God's son was lifted up once for all on the cross. And all who call to him, who believe in him, those are they who find eternal life. Do you see God's mercy extended in the gospel today? Do you see this call of salvation 
in Christ's birth and his coming? Do you see that, that his birth was for your rebirth? If so, then I urge you, come to him. Uh, call out to him today. You will find him to be a faithful savior, born for your salvation, your redemption, your reconciliation. And it is that reconciliation then that we will close with this morning. And we go back then to the second line of the first verse, which says, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. A fitting place to find ourselves for today, we focus in on the peace in our celebration of Advent. And we've just looked at in the scripture the wonderful mercy of Christ extended in the gospel. And that is all summed up, say Wesley and Whitfield in this carol, in the statement, God and sinners reconciled. Now what is this reconciliation? Why is it important? Well, it's not just Wesley or Whitfield that that summed it up as such, But first, it is found in the scriptures. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul put it just like this. Now, we've looked at this passage in previous weeks concerning the great hope which was brought to us in Christ. But the passage begins, Romans 5, 1, like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, that is one of the major themes of Advent. It's, it's on numerous Christmas cards that you've already re- no doubt received. It's in numerous Christmas carols and songs. It's a Christmas wish extended by many. It, it's a warming thought for certain. It's all of these, but it's so much more. You may have heard the popular Christmas song. It's been around for a number of years. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Now, that song is probably made most famous by, uh, by Vince Gill of the Eagles. It might be on your uh, Eagles Greatest Hits album, uh, right along with Hotel California and Take It Easy. But the writer of that song was, was actually a woman named Jill Jackson, who said that she wrote it after finding the life-saving joy of God's peace and love. Many have found that to be so. For her, it was in the immediate context of, of her life being saved from suicide. For many, it's the life-saving peace of God through many hardships and trials. And while the peace of God does cover all those things, it's, it's really peace with God that we must begin with. Apart from peace with God, all other things fall out of place. After all, it is peace with God that was lost in the first garden. It was falling from fellowship with him through sin. Peace with God must be the true start of all other peace. And if we are to wish, as we do with that song, let there be peace on earth, we must truly wish and work 
for individuals to have peace with God. And then those who have peace with God experience the peace of God in their lives and we become agents of his peace on earth. So what does Romans 5 have to say about this? We skip down a little bit and go to verse number 6. And we read that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now notice our condition that is laid out in those verses. We are weak, ungodly, sinners, and ultimately under wrath. And that is why, dear one, that peace with God is so crucial and vitally important. We are weak and weary, unrighteous and ungodly. Yet they are those whom Christ died for. Those who had no peace with God. And that is the case of all humanity. Every person born into this world is born into that state. Now the passage goes on in verse number 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This portion adds two more details to our condition. It it says that we were an enemy of God. It also says that we were separated, needing reconciliation. That is much more than just a, a concept, a theological idea. To be ultimately separated from God is to be separated from the source, the life-giving source of of light. Not just the, the physical source either. In his common grace, of course, he gives physical life to many. But true life, eternal life, the kind of life that, that John spoke of when telling us about the second birth, the kind of life that that comes only from knowing God. That is a life of which separation from him removes. Those of you who have been estranged from someone you love, be it a spouse, a sibling, a a son, a daughter, a friend, You know, you know the deep pain of separation, the the agony of the rift that's experienced in in that relational gulf. You know the depths that you would go to, that you have gone to in in attempting to bridge that gap, 
to close that tear, to repair that rift. You know the tears you have cried and the weight on your shoulders. And that kind of separation is but a taste of the weight of the separation and needed reconciliation with God. God, who calls us to live at peace with one another, who, who calls us to be right with our brothers and sisters, uh, to, who calls us to forgive and forbear, and who gives us a ministry of reconciliation. God is the first great reconciler. He is the one who of his own love and will enacted and worked a a one-sided effort in reconciliation. We were weak, ungodly, enemies even. In other places in scripture, it says we we were foreigners and strangers. But God... We read that in Romans 5. We also read it in Ephesians 2. But God, verse 4 says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is in the the same wonderful category of analogies that we saw in John. We need a a new birth. In the same way, we need a new life. Do you see this theme? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were dead in sins, God raised us up. When we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself. When we couldn't even see the wind, God's spirit blew new life into us in the second birth. This is the miracle of salvation, the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of Christ's coming brought down to us. Christ born for our rebirth. Christ dead for our death penalty. Christ Raised for our resurrection and Christ ever living for our eternal life. That is why we say with the angels, glory to the newborn king. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Now, we sang three verses of uh, the carol, Hark the Herald, this morning. And those three verses are all that are in our hymnal. It's all that are in most hymnals and versions of the song that are sung. But Wesley and Whitfield, they both intended at least one other verse of the carol to be sung. And that final verse goes like this. Come, desire of nations, come... Fix in us thy heavenly home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. 
Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, work it in us by thy love. Do you hear that imagery? It's right out of scripture. It brings us right back to the garden, right back to where that separation began, right back to where peace and fullness and life and light were traded for a false promise by that serpent, the devil. There was, though, one beautiful thing that came out of that cursed situation, And that was the promise that we find in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the serpent. All of scripture then traces and points to that blessed seed. It points to the the birth of all births, the the pinnacle of a family tree, the, the son of all sons, the king of all kings, the prince of peace. That seed is Jesus Christ. Now this story is told for us right where we've been looking in in Romans 5. So we read on in verse number 19. And it says to us, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear the wonderful news? The first Adam plunged into ruin, but the second Adam pulls us from the depths. The first Adam's reign was in disobedience and curse. The second Adam's reign in grace and righteousness. The same concept comes up in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 45, we read, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, a man from heaven. As as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. As men and women, as boys and girls, we are born bearing the image of the first Adam. We are born under under his headship, falling under that, that statement that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Though born bearing Adam's sinful image, Through resurrection and rebirth, we do and we shall 
bear the image of the second Adam. A second Adam who is none other than Christ. Do you see the imagery of, of the two births here? Adam is the man of dust, and we are naturally of dust with him. Jesus is the man of heaven, and we are born from above, born again through him. This is true reconciliation, to be taken from our lowly state, to being raised up, to commune and fellowship and dwell with God, the creator of all, the source of all, the life giving ruler of all. Do you rejoice in this today? I hope you do. Perhaps you are you are seeing this all in a new light today. Perhaps you are beginning to, to grasp the importance of Christ's coming. Maybe you've known these things as facts or as as stories for a while. But maybe now you are seeing the call of Christ come to you. If so, would you come to him? Would you call out to him? Would you receive him as as John 1 told us, becoming a son or a daughter of God, experiencing truly that that peace with God that leads to the peace of God. That, that second birth born from above, born of the Spirit. And Christian, know that, that Jesus, our Emmanuel, is not just a concept, it's, it's not just a, a, an idea. But know that God truly is with us. He dwells in you by the Spirit. That is your hope and joy and love and peace brought down. Do you live as though Christ lives in you? Does his life course through your veins? the life of of righteousness and victory, the life of of no condemnation, the life of no separation, the life of, of no more death by sin, but rather death to sin in salvation, in all of life. May we say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth. The joyful announcement of Christ's birth is so great. Because it tells us that God is with us. That he has rescued us. And that we are reconciled to him.